meeting here recently. It was going to be a tough meeting, full of conflict, and someone from the church texted me and said, uh, hey, just remember, don't try to make everyone happy tonight. You're not a taco. I was like, okay. Uh, and it was true. I didn't make everybody happy, further proving his point. But what is it that's so great about tacos? You, you thought I was kidding about us talking about tacos. We're going to do this. Um, why did Americans eat 4.5 billion tacos last year? And in honor of Apollo 11, in case you were wondering, if you laid those tacos out end to end, it's 490,000 miles, which takes you to the moon and back. Or, if you'd prefer weight, it is 775 million pounds, which is equal to the weight of two Empire State Buildings. So I like all kinds of tacos, all the ingredients, breakfast tacos with eggs, chorizo, bacon, fish tacos, shrimp tacos, chicken, beef, pork, brisket. And then there's a bunch of stuff that's really kind of gross, but if you put it in a taco, for some reason it seems okay. Um, but somehow, when you put everything, all those individual ingredients together, the sum is better than the parts. It creates this new taste as if by some form of black taco magic, and it is awesome together. And one of the things I think that makes tacos great is you can still taste the individual ingredients inside the taco, but they fit together in a way that makes something new and better. Tacos are better than just a pile of meat or cheese or a plain tortilla. Although all of those are good by themselves, they're better together. But that's how we mostly live our lives and unfortunately even do church. We're just a big pile of meat sitting by ourselves, not knowing how much better our life would be if we hung out with cheese or a little bit of salsa. Now let me prove it the opposite way. So we have the tacos up here. Here are four crispy beef tacos, and I'm embarrassed to say this, they're from Dairy Queen. Not because Dairy Queen tacos are good, but because it was cheap, and you'll see why here. Um, because I want to let you give a fair warning, tacos were harmed in the making of this illustration. So these tacos, they have cheese and lettuce, salsa, tomatoes, a little bit of lettuce, um, and those are all good ingredients. But what would happen if you took those same ingredients and ground them up until you couldn't really tell the individual ingredients? You had total unity of taco. Would you still have the same taco magic? No, you wouldn't. Of course not. You want to know what you have? It's this. It's gross. It's taco baby food. It's the same ingredients, but the ingredients have lost their individual identity. To be part of this unified, homogenous, ground taco. And if you're wondering, it still smelled like a taco. It didn't taste as good as a taco. So the question for our sermon as we transition away from tacos is, how much diversity of the ingredients can exist and still be unified into a glorious, beautiful taco. How much diversity can you have and still be unified? How much unity can you have 
and still reflect the full beauty of diversity? Which I think is an important question today as our country wrestles with increasing polarization, or we might say separation, or even segregation in almost every single way. We see it in our news choices. Today you can choose a news source to match your opinion, your worldview, to listen to folks just like you who always agree with you. Political issues of our day, immigration, school names, statues, the tweets of our president, they all raise questions of unity and diversity. And it's also a question for Bethel and even a question for this campus. How much unity can you have and still reflect the full beauty of diversity? Our passage today is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 8. It's Ephesians 2, 11 through 8, and it paints a very different picture than what we see in our culture today. We see in Scripture a radical countercultural reconciliation that cuts across every single line we can imagine. And it's so beautiful and it's so important that it was worth the death of Christ. It's so beautiful that it will continue into eternity. And my prayer is that somehow, despite my weakness and inability, despite me not being Ricky Garner, that God's Spirit would show us the beauty of the unity in the midst of diversity that is possible. The beauty of unity in the midst of diversity, not just here on a Sunday morning with about 100 people, but seven days a week as we live our life outside of this building in a way that impacts our city, our region, and our state. As you're turning to Ephesians 2, I'll set a little bit of context for us. Letters written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus around 60 AD while Paul sat in prison. And he expounds on the great theme of this book, which is God's love. God's love for us poured out in His Son, His grace. And we see that that's really His motive for redemption. Why God redeemed us is because He loved us from the very beginning. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, we see this great love for us existed even while we were dead in sin. Even while we were God's enemy, He still loved us. And then, what's probably our collective favorite verse in the Bible, Ephesians 2.8, which might be the most succinct answer for how you are saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our passage today begins the examination of what the implications or the effects or the results of God's love and His grace poured out acting to save us. So here's how we'll do this. I'm going to read the passage. We'll divide the passage into three sections. Divinely divided, that's verses 11 and 12. Uh, divinely united, verses 13 through 17. And then verse 18, which is divinely empowered. But before I get started, I want to give you two warnings. And the first is... While I was in seminary, I wrote a 24-page, single-space paper on this passage, which is three or four times longer than one of Ricky's sermons, even when he gets wound up. And my sermons are certainly more boring than his, but what I really mean is there's more to say about this passage than I have time for. 
or at least that you will be willing to listen to me. Got to go eat those tacos. The second warning is that I'm going to talk about something that's very hard to talk about in our culture today, even here in church, and that is race. Now, this campus is used to that, but I think there's a special warning for this group of folks. It's always dangerous when you hear a sermon and you think those out there need to hear this. I think there's a message in here today for us. Because I don't want us to think, even though this room is diverse, that we've somehow arrived, or that we somehow have this figured out, um, or that we somehow are better than the folks who haven't. I'm thankful for God's grace to have brought us this far, and I pray that His Word will show us where we can go. So please stand with me, and we'll read... Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You may be seated. So our first section, verses 11 and 12, is divinely divided. So who's divided? Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. So it's the Gentiles which is really everyone in the world except the Jews. In fact the word here for Gentiles, ethne in the Greek, it's the same word we get uh, the English word ethnic or ethnicity. It's translated elsewhere as the nations or the peoples. Same word used in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations. That's ethnic. These same non-Jews are also called the uncircumcision since the mark of Jewishness since the days of Abraham and specifically as a sign of God's covenant with him was circumcision. And Paul points out that physical circumcision is a human work, not a divine work, in fact, the Greek word here is the same one that describes the inferiority of idols, other man-made religious symbols. And it's even used to describe the temple in Jerusalem. All man-made versus what is contrasted with true spiritual actions done only by God. And just as Paul wrote a few verses earlier, we are saved not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not human work or actions. It's not human hands that do this. It is a gift of God. 
Paul's request to remember is in the present tense, which has this sense of we need to continue to remember, which for Paul's original readers was easy. We're talking about 30, 40, 50 years ago when he wrote this. But for us, 2,000 years later, in a church that's overwhelmingly made up of Gentiles, it's even harder to remember it. But it's no less important for us to continue to remember, as we sang about today, the great gift that is being included in God's plan, His family, His redemptive work. But just in case His readers or us have forgotten, Paul is going to remind us of what being excluded from God's redemptive plan for the previous 1,500 years had looked like by listing five former realities for the church in Ephesus. Number one, they were separated from Christ or the Messiah, which is probably better translated as without Christ. They're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's chosen people, His chosen nation. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, the covenants that promise the future blessings that come when the Messiah arrives. They were hopeless. This was not going to get better for them. There wasn't anything they could do to improve their situation. They were without God in the world, which doesn't mean that God was limited to certain places on earth, but these folks didn't know how to get to Him. They were separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless, blocked, because as God's plan for redemption started, it began with Abraham and a select line of his descendants. And although you can look back and see that God's desire always for all, was for all the nations to come to him, the Jews had become so focused and even prideful of their separation, their separateness from the nations, that they were failing at their main role, which was to be a kingdom of priests to draw others to their God. You ever felt left out? Ever felt like you didn't belong? Disrespected? Told to go back to where you came from? As bad as that is, this is worse. As much as we are divided today, it is hard for us to appreciate and understand the depth of the division that Paul is talking about here. Divided by every line, by religious, cultural, social, racial, political, and even linguistic barriers. That's divinely divided. Now look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, what was once divinely divided is now brought together and divinely united. And as completely as Jews and Gentiles were separated, they are now even more divinely brought together. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, this isn't human action. This isn't Jews and Gentiles deciding they all should just get along. This is something special. It is divine action. The eternal Son of God stepping out of glory, coming to live on earth as a baby, somehow yet fully God. 
living a sinless life and being crucified on a cross. Not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. We deserve to be on that cross instead of him paying the price for our rebellion, for our disregard for our brother, for our defiance to God. And the benefit that the text shows of God acting is that we are brought near. It's in the passive voice for you grammar geeks, which means it was done to us. We're brought near. We're no longer separated, no longer alienated, no longer strangers, and no longer hopeless. So how did that happen? The text says it's the cross, specifically the blood of the cross, the blood of Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. So this inclusion into God's family, this unity, this reconciliation that the text talks about, there's a special focus here on bringing the outsider in. Of reconciling the Gentiles to the Jews, or better, all the nations, all the races, reconciling them to God and to the Jews, the people of God. And this unity comes at a great cost. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the life of the Son. I think when we reflect on this great price paid for our salvation, we often think of it in individual terms. This passage points out that one of the results accomplished by Jesus at this great cost is the reconciliation of all the races to him, and as a result, reconciling the races to each other. As Americans, we have a worldview that tends to emphasize the individual. We talk about free will, personal responsibility, liberty. I think this also impacts our view of salvation, where we think of it almost only in individual terms. We talk about making a personal decision, which, which it is, but God's plan is not just for us as individuals. It's for peoples. It's for races. It's for cultures. As Paul tells us in Romans 18, it's for all of creation. Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's plan of redemption goes way beyond us as individuals. And this unity is not just peaceful coexistence or indifference, it's divine unity. Verse 14 and 15, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This means that Jesus not only did something that brought peace, He's actually peace Himself. He is the source of our peace. And by meeting the just requirements of the law, by remaining sinless until His death, He fulfilled the law which nullified it or rendered it powerless. And by doing that, He removed the divine requirements that had separated Jews from the other nations. 
But couldn't you read in verse 14 where it says he made us both one? Or in verse 15 where he says he's created one new man in place of the two? Couldn't you read that, that these racial differences have been wiped out? They've been eliminated. Like that taco that was all ground together. I don't think that's how we're supposed to read that. I think for two reasons. The first is he's referring to the church here. And even after this passage, he elaborates further. And Paul often uses the metaphor of the church as a man or a person to describe the different roles. He's not referring to a new type of raceless human being here. The second is, elsewhere in Scripture, we see races and cultures and nations continuing even into the eternal state. For example, if we were to look at Revelation 7, verse 9, John, the author, describing heaven, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, in a place where there is no sin, where they purely and unashamedly worship the Lamb. John, writing what he saw with his eyes, still saw race. He still hears different languages. And he recognizes in the, in the throne room different ethnicities. No sin truly grasping the glory of the Lamb, responding in authentic worship. And the way John describes the beauty of this scene is its size, it's a multitude too great to count, and it's diversity. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language perfectly united in their worship of the Lamb. It's the diversity of these worshipers that strikes John. And it should strike us too. Not just a hundred on a Sunday, but multitudes. So big you can't count it. So it's not that racial diversity has gone away. It's been transcended. The most important thing about us is not our race or ethnicity, where we live or the language we speak. The most important thing is are we reconciled to God and are we united in worship of the Lamb? But do we look and expect this type of radical reconciliation in the church today? In our individual lives do we see this? Let's talk about our expectations of what happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus. If you were to like take a poll on the streets, ask a generic Christian what should be the results here on earth if someone comes to faith, you'd hear answers like, well, they should sin less. Or here's a list of things that they should no longer do. And we certainly see Scripture encouraging us to sin less. I don't want to minimize sin. And if you dug a little deeper, they might say, well, I'd expect to see some fruit. I expect to see some, some effort or activity that produces something. Which is what Paul has just finished talking about. He says in verse 10, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Which means we should do them. Good works. Those things are good to do. But the emphasis in our passage today is on the reconciliation of the races and the peoples and the nations to God and to each other. And I think here's where our American individualism causes us to read this a little differently. But I don't think we bring the same expectation for the results of salvation, for the change that comes, to include the reconciliation of the races. But I believe that's exactly what this passage says our expectation should be. One result or fruit of our salvation should be that we, more than the rest of the culture around us, should be able to not ignore race, but to see the beauty that's possible when we are united by something more beautiful. But in fact, we see the opposite in our country, in our state, and even our city. You know, but it hasn't always been like that. In the last 200 years, we've moved from segregated pews to segregated churches. You've heard Ricky quote Dr. Martin Luther King that says, Sunday mornings are the most segregated hours of the week, and that was in 1963. And it's still true today. In fact, LifeWay Research did a survey of American churchgoers in 2015 and found that on average, 80% of an individual church's attendees were from the same race. And worse, we're pretty much okay with that. Less than half of those who were surveyed, 40%, felt their church needed to become more diverse, and worse, 33% said, no, I don't want to become more diverse. But if we're really divinely united, if one of the effects or the results of the cross is the reconciliation of the races, then why don't we see more of that? Why are we so separated on Sunday? I'll give you three reasons, two cultural and one theological. So the first explanation is what I call the noceums, which are annoying bugs, in case you didn't know. But noceums are people who say things like this, and I confess that I have said this before, uh, and I repent, but they say things like this, I really don't see race anymore. I'm colorblind. Race really is not an issue for me. Which usually only hear from the majority race, white folks like me. Which is sad because if you don't see race, you're missing out. To not see race is to minimize the creativity of our Creator. In the same way, we can marvel at the countless ways God can paint a sunset. In the same way that we can watch how a stream will wind through the woods and the mountains. Uniquely chisel a mountain range. We should also marvel at the beauty of God's created races. Which is what makes this campus so beautiful. It's visible testimony to how God is working among all His people. 
to not see race is to not see the full scope and power and beauty of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's like the difference between real tacos and the baby food version we saw earlier. One is beautiful and makes you happy, and the other is just plain sad. So that's the first cultural explanation, the noceums. The second is that because of the segregation of the church over the last 150 years here in America, one of the ways culture is expressed at church is in the preferences for the way a church is organized or the way it's run, the style of worship, the types of ministry you offer, the roles of men and women in leadership, the way you preach, because if you haven't noticed, I'm not Ricky Garner, preach a little differently than he does. But those cultural expressions have become preferences, and they make us feel comfortable, which is why Ricky is always talking about shared discomfort, which is a tough sell in today's world. We're about the only places we go where we know we're going to be uncomfortable are the dentist and the gym. And you can tell by looking at me, I don't like either one of those. So why would you go to a church that makes you feel uncomfortable? One reason is because you're pursuing something more beautiful, more important than your comfort or your preference. Unity in the midst of diversity. So that's the second cultural reason is our preferences. Now to the theological reason. Let's go back to another worship scene in heaven. This time Revelation 5 verse 9 and 10 where the worshipers say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. So that same precious blood in our passage today ransomed all these different people for God so that all these kinds of people could be priests to God. So if the nations were ransomed for God, and if the plan of God all along was to reconcile all peoples, all nations to himself, and our passage today says that he accomplished that at the cross, and if what we know is that plan persists into eternity, then who do we know who desires above everything to oppose the plan and purposes of God? That's right. And it's pretty much impossible to say this without sounding like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. So I'll just say it, get it out of the way. It's Satan. It's the enemy. The reason Bethel as a whole, like many other churches in Tyler, is so white, the reason the American church is so segregated, the reason that the history of the American church is that we've been on the wrong side of so many racial issues, beyond our own sinfulness, is spiritual warfare. Which is why this issue is so hard for us to get past. For us as individuals, for us as a church, and especially for the church in America. It's spiritual warfare. Which is why I believe the enemy would love 
for this campus to fail. He would love to keep this group present on Sunday, but not truly united. Not truly connected throughout the week. He would love for discontent, discomfort, and our preferences to distract us. Distract us from the beauty of the cultural and ethnic unity that is present here right now. He would love for you to keep this just to yourself as our little secret here in North Thailand and not to share it with your friends and loved ones. You know, what human force can prevail against that spiritual enemy? What army is strong enough? What political philosophy or party is persuasive enough? What political leader is compelling enough? What laws could be strong enough against that enemy? None. It's the blood of the cross that makes that possible. But fortunately for us, the same God that has divinely united us has also empowered us. Look at verse 18. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through faith in Jesus, through His blood on the cross, we are reconciled to God and to each other. And that same one Spirit comes to live inside us and we become new creations with new affections, with changed hearts, with changed ways of seeing the world around us, have transformed minds, from all tribes, from all peoples, from all races, from all tongues and languages, yet united in one spirit. You know, we talked earlier about Bethel mission trips, which you should go on, or any mission trip. But one of the great things about it is to see the unity of the spirit that's possible when you go to places where people are not from your culture. And they speak a different language when they look differently than you. And yet, you see what unity can be like that cuts across these kind of lines. One of my first mission trips with Bethel was to Italy. I know it sounds rough. But beyond the good food, the gelato, the coffee, the art, and the history, the most beautiful thing was to join another group of believers, of brothers and sisters who spoke another language and yet worshiped the same God that I did. And to feel the Spirit draw me and draw us together, despite the fact I couldn't understand what they were saying, yet I knew they worshiped the same God that I love. And this weird thing happens, you feel your heart full of love for them, even though you don't know them. In fact, we didn't promote it today, but I'm leading a trip to Sierra Leone, which is not quite Italy. A little harder to get to, but we're going in November, and if you want to go check out the website, um, all the information is on there. 
But if you can't afford to go on a Bethel missions trip, there is one place I know where you can experience different cultures. And it's right here in North Tyler at Hope Church. So here's your task. Tell your friends, tell your family members and loved ones about what God is doing amongst these people here in North Tyler so that they can begin to see what Revelation 7 looks like here on earth. A tiny bit of heaven, which is better than the best taco you can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, you are great, and you are so good to us. You are so gracious towards us that even while we shook our fists at you, you loved us. Even when there was nothing good or pleasing in us, before we could disappoint you, before we could rebel, you loved us. And you loved us so much that you sent your Son. And as we've learned here today, Father, that that Son made a way for us to be reconciled to you. It's through faith, because of your grace towards us. And that not only did that blood reconcile us to you, that it reconciled us to each other. And so, Father, in the same way that we see changed hearts and changed minds as a result of your Spirit at work in us, I pray, Father, that we'd also see in our own lives examples of grace. And, I, Father, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see the beauty of your creation expressed not just in nature, but in us as men and women. Father, I pray for this campus. I pray for our church. I pray that you would guard us against the plans and the deception of the enemy. I pray that your spirit would knit us together in a way that would be another example of your great love, another example of your power, another example of your grace. And Father, you would be gracious to show us the fruit of that, that you would bring more people to experience that here on earth, and that that would change our neighborhoods, would change our city, change our region. Not to make us big, not to make us important, but to bring glory to your Son. It's in his name that I pray in the power of that one spirit that unites us. Amen. Ricky? Okay. I want Prince to bless us with the benediction in just a minute. Thank you so much for such a challenging word. Thank you. We needed to hear that, and I think it's so relevant for us today in our society that we live in, that we need to be reminded what the Bible says about race and race relations and that race is real. We can't hide from it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
So we thank God for you, and then we want to thank God also for John Starling, who blessed us tremendously today. Bless you, sir. God bless you. Uh, before Fritz offers us the benediction, I do want to remind everyone that we do now have our prayer team that's available for anyone that would like personal prayer with someone. Uh, Dennis is standing by uh, to meet with you and pray with you after service is over. If you'd like to take advantage of that, uh, you're welcome to do so. With that, great. Please stand. May the God of grace and mercy, who's poured out His Spirit on us through faith in His Son that can reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another. May that same Spirit guide us and keep us and encourage us and fortify us and go with us as we leave here today. We love you. Amen. Go in peace.